0: Read that, and then, uh, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll take a look at this together. So, kids, hopefully you've got your children's ministry bulletin. There's a black Bible in front of you, and if you open up right in the middle, you should find Psalm, the book of Psalms, and then wander over to, uh, to, to one, Psalm 150, which happens to be on page 624. And we'll all be on the same page, so to speak. If you have your own Bible, that's fine too, of course. I think it's great to look at this and to interact with it. We'll have some PowerPoint, but uh, it's good to have it in front of you as well. So it's more permanently there instead of just for a moment on a screen. So let me read this for us, and, uh, and we'll dig into this a little bit together. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath... Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. Father, we do pray now that we'd be able to attend, to pay attention to this Word. And it wouldn't just be a words that we receive like any other word, but the very Word of God that gives us life, that uh, challenges and edifies us and maybe even stirs us up. So we pray that you would do that as we look together at this word, that it would have its intended effect. And I pray especially for those who perhaps need to remember that there is something bigger than, than just themselves to, to praise, whatever the circumstances may be, for those who call you their father, that they would know comfort, even from words like this, that you're to be praised in the highest heavens, but also um, in the sanctuary. And And in this space, too, everything in between, uh, I think, especially of Donna, who's facing some back surgery tomorrow, uh, a daunting prospect, but really the pathway to um, healing some pain in her life, Father. And there may be something similar for each of us, too, in the spiritual realm or the emotional realm as well. And we pray that we would trust and trust to you our very lives. And that we wouldn't leave it for the rocks and for creation, which already shouts out that you are God. uh, But that we would claim that right as well and articulate it as humans who can be creative and specific in that praise and not just general like creation. Far be it for the rocks to cry out in praise when that is something that we are created to do even more beautifully. So allow us today to sing along with uh, your word, this final hallelujah. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have uh, an invitation here. It's a save the date invitation. It's for uh, September 28th. It's for Steph and for Sam. Sam Baker, as you know, used to lead music here. A couple of us saw him a couple weeks ago. We went down to River of Life and participated in their, their games. So this invitation came in the mail. It's really exciting. Now, my kids really uh, enjoy Sam's presence as well. So they say, can we go? Can we go? And I, I fear this is just for me and for my wife. So this invitation is just for us to go and celebrate. My kids then are disappointed. Um, they have FOMO, fear of missing out. Do you have FOMO? Uh, it's, it's something that I think a lot of us have a different type. There's something you want to go to. And you're not invited. That's a, that's a real bummer. And uh, I love weddings because there are places of celebration. There's something so, uh, so somber about it because it's serious. But also joyful as well. And interestingly enough, weddings oftentimes are analogies that God uses in the Bible for our relationship with him too. And uh, we're invited as well. Um, But this is a grander invitation than just a one-time event at a wedding. We're invited in this psalm to praise God. And we're we're invited to do that quite a few times. Um, In fact, let me just give another illustration. So, true, true. Come here. Come here. Good girl, good girl. Sit. Yeah, good girl. Touch. Oh, good girl. Good girl. Down. Okay, roll over. That's good. Sit. good girl, good girl. All right, good. Okay. I don't know what go back means, is, but retreat. Okay. Go on, go on. I'm done. I don't have anything else. Go. So what I was doing with, with, uh, with Drew right there is nothing you're unfamiliar with, but I was giving commands, right? Sit and touch and roll over, okay, be. Those are called imperatives. When you give a command, it's an, it's an imperative to do something. She, she did a great job responding. Ten times in the psalm, there's an imperative, praise. And the three, three other times, hallelujah, it's, it's an invitation. So this is a bit of like an invitation to give God what is due him. That we've been created to praise him. And that praise isn't complete until we actually enter into it. That's what this psalm's about. So this is an invitation, kids and adults, to come and to praise the God who will see has made all things. Now, we're not just told to praise, we're told why we're supposed to do this and who and where and how, just like in the invitation would be. So let's take a look at this. Final hallelujah. You don't want to miss out. Where do we praise God? In verse 1. Praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. So, first, praise is offered in a location called the sanctuary. Now, remember, this is before the temple has probably been built, but God's people were wandering around in the desert. They had a tabernacle and a place where only certain people could go to experience the presence of God. And in that presence, there's a sense of praise and honor and respect and awareness of who God is that's somewhat unique. Now, church isn't just buildings. This is a building we gather together. And yet, there is a time when we gather together in corporate worship together. There's something about that. There's something about God's people gathering and remembering and offering praise to him that's good for us. You praise him in the sanctuary, that physical space that is set aside for worship. And this is why we do that. Some people might just gather in a house if that's all i have access to but somewhere you're getting together with people to praise god that notion exists stronger in some cultures than others holy space sacred ground a place that is set aside for worship and we need that And it's why we create it. God puts some important instructions in place about the tabernacle and then the temple. If you're reading through the Bible with us, the temple's being constructed and Solomon's given specific... I mean, it's overwhelming what's being put into the building of this temple. Why? So God can be appropriately worshipped. And while it's true that the New Testament notion of church is less physical... His people are the spiritual house being built together. Nonetheless, it underscores the necessity importance of gathering in physical proximity for the purpose of worship. And I think also, depending on what your situation is and a house, it might be nice to kind of designate some space that, you know, even if it's a closet, if you have one or something, like this is a place you go where you can orient your thoughts and think about God. A physical place. And that is the perfect place to worship. Our thoughts are focused. Our time is dedicated. Our energies are directed toward the end of praising God. But it's not just here. It goes beyond that. In fact, the psalmist takes us to the opposite extreme. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So you got a physical place, the sanctuary they'd know, and then the heavens all the way up there. And this would be a merism, a a Hebrew way of saying as high as you can go, and it's where we are right now, including everything in between, that's where you praise Him. Everywhere, all of life is worship. There is a special kind of set aside way the Lord's Day we gather, but then you don't just leave this church building and think, "Well, I guess I'll stop worshiping God until next Sunday at ten thirty a.m. if I get there on time." <laughs> right? It's all the time. Praise Him in His heaven. Doesn't matter where you are—at work, at home, at play. Praise Him everywhere. covers every other place there is. Psalm Psalm 148, verses 1 and 7. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the ocean depths. A little glimpse ahead there. There's no limitation to the space where God can and should be praised. And in fact, creation itself sings His praises in this very manner. Remember, Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Creation is singing his praise in the sanctuary in the mighty heaven. So that's where. You know, an invitation, where? Where is Sam's wedding? Actually, I don't know. Cincinnati. I don't know specifically where. But then you have a where and you have a why. Well, this one's for a wedding. Why are we going to do this praise of him? Verse 2. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. So, first we praise God. Why? For his acts of power. What he does. You know, when when we have stories of grace, this is part of why we do this. That'll be next week. You know, the fourth Sunday. We think, we talk, we stand up, we say, this is what I've seen God do in my life and around me and through me. And and the Bible's full of that. The Psalms look back all the time, remembering what he has done. And that's good for us to remember that because we forget And we've got to praise him for what he's done. Praise him for his acts of power. One of the chief motifs is the exodus in the Bible. They look back and they celebrate what he's done in history, in space, and in time. If you have a worldview that says there is no God, let's say you're an atheist, you're an evolutionist, then something happens you can't explain. Your conclusion has to be the information isn't in yet. That's usually what you would think. For somebody who has a a world view, they have an easy explanation for it. God's at work. In the simple as well as in the fantastic. Both require a measure of faith. There's a lot of things it seems that can't be explained. There's a lot of information we don't know. But there's so much the, the Bible gives us about what we can. And that's his acts of power. You probably have stories like that in your own life. We praise him as well for his ongoing work throughout time. God's actions are the very substance of what we call grace. Whether it's in salvation, by grace you have been saved. Not because of what you've done. Not because of your acts. Not because of what you've done. But because of what he's done. And that's part of his acts of power taking a dead, lifeless, not caring anything about God or anybody else except for myself person and infusing them with the life of the Spirit and saying, you know, this isn't all about me. There's a God who created me and I am fulfilled when I praise him and serve other people. That's not something you can do. That's something God does. That's one of his acts of power. We praise him for that. Or just even in the course of our daily life. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. The power is made perfect in your weakness. You're struggling. God's acting in that. So we praise him. And we we praise him second for his surpassing greatness. So not just his acts of power, but his greatness. That is who he is. There's what he does, and there's who he is. His character. His actions flow from his character. All of God's actions flow from his character. What does John say? God is... Love. Any actions on his part flow from an economy of love. Even if it's justice. We love him because he first loved us. His characters love us first. Even when we were unlovely. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that the verse? Or is it as soon as we got nice enough for God to say, I guess you are worth it. Then I'll send my son. That's not it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This isn't like I have to qualify by being good enough. You qualify in your sin. What qualifies you for salvation is recognizing that you're in sin, recognizing you're distant from God, recognizing you need, rescuing. And then you praise Him for that. Out of His love, He responds. And that love is most clearly displayed, of course, in the gift of his son. A creator sacrificing what is most precious on behalf of those he has created who have rejected him. I mean, this is a Father's Day, right? And Fa- Father's Day is hard for some people because maybe you've lost a father. Or even I was praying earlier, maybe you have a really bad father. And, and it's, it's hard. You're just, there's a lot of disappointment there. The backdrop for any of this language is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father sending God the Son to a world that would reject them. Reject him. Scorned. We sang about it. Nailed on the cross. We despised and rejected him. But he still still came. And for me, I often think my own uh, limited understanding of theology is most pressed on the cross when Jesus, the son, cries out to his father, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this intimate relationship of father and son, what we all desire, and God pours out his wrath on his son because he's come, become sin personified. And in that moment, the perfect fellowship of all eternity is completely gone. And God effectively forsakes his son because his son has become sin. Now that, that is mind- blowing to me. And they planned this for our good. He knew it was coming. So God created us but also his son. And the son who's the object of his affection, he turns his back on for me and for you. For people who don't even really care that much about it half the time. I'm, you know, I read the book Frankenstein every now and then because I teach it in one of these classes and it's such a very different story. Frankenstein, uh, you know this doctor Frankenstein is not the monster, but he creates a monster. And the first thing he does when the monster wakes up and he looks at what he's created is what? Anybody know what he does when he first looks at him? He runs away in horror and disgust. And the monster has no idea to do with that. And this is a little glimpse of, of how how the monster responds. He's wondering who was I? What was I? Whence did I come? What was my destination? The questions continually recurred, but I was unable to solve them. Accursed creator. Why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? I was alone. Unfeeling, heartless creator. You had endowed me with perceptions and passions and then cast me abroad, an object for the scorn and horror of mankind. It's a really depressing book. And it's so depressing in a sense because he's created this monster and he seems to be kind of could go either way, but all he gets is rejection from everybody. So eventually he says, you know what? If you're going to reject me, I'll, I'll assume that position and that posture. That seems to be the only thing I'm good at. And he goes around destroying everybody's lives. It's an amazing picture of what rejection and forsaking can do. And here's God the Son rejected by God the Father and yet for us who have raised the fist because he loves us and he wants to draw us near. Psalm 149 verse 4 paints a very different picture of the creature-creator relationship. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. God, Yahweh, the covenant God, takes delight in his people. That's very different than Dr. Frankenstein with the monster. You disgust me. I delight in you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know every thought that you have. And I also know, I also know, I I know the deepest, darkest things about you. And if you think that's going to keep me from you, forget about it. Forget about it. Look at the cross. My love will pursue you. The only question is are you willing to be pursued? And and if you're drawn into that narrative, of course you're going to say, Praise God for his acts of power. Praise God for his surpassing greatness, his character. Because I don't know anybody else who's going to do that. But he will, and he does. Where? Everywhere. Why? His acts of power, surpassing greatness. Now, how? How are we going to do this? How are we going to respond to this invitation? Verses 3 to 5. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Bring everything you got. All the instruments, all the dance moves, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, this is why I delight sometimes a couple of our kids here have just started dancing. You know, we're way too reserved to do that. Probably, just in our, our tradition, maybe our own sensibilities. But isn't it delightful to see a kid just dancing? During, during music just fills your heart with joy and that's, that's appropriate We praise him with all that we have so there's this sense of great reverence in worship but also tremendous joy the clarion call the trumpet the soothing melody of the harp and the lyre the percussive rhythm and the tambourine and the active engagement of whatever soul you might have in you even if it's just a tiny little shred the intonations of the strings, the lilt of the flute, the rousing clang of the cymbal, give them all of it. Add every voice to his praise. It's symphonic. And I think one of the reasons this is encouraged, frankly, is because not everyone does have a voice in tune with instrumentation. (laughs) I, I think instruments are good to be brought in worship because they'll carry the melody sometimes when some of us, frankly, just can't. And you can enter into it with others as well. That's the beauty of corporate worship. Kind of worship inspires reverence and joy, quiet beauty, and frankly, some free abandon. We praise with reverence. who praise with joy. We praise with psalms. We praise with old songs. In fact, you can even add a new song to the mix. And Psalm one forty nine one says, "Sing to the Lord a new song." And that was written a long time ago. They're writing new songs. Michael Card, who is a, a songwriter, and he's getting a little aged now, but he's a, a great creative thinker. Um, writes this about new music. New songs are a major indicator that the spirit of God's on the move, breathing, inspiring men and women to respond to his beauty for his sake, as well as for the sake of the community of faith. New songs are a response to hunger, to God's desire to be praised for who he is, and to the community's desire to be shown how to respond. By grace, he gives us fresh material with which to worship him. I can't remember if I've shared this here before or not. I don't know. But the first time I went to India a handful of years ago and was speaking to about 200 Indian pastors, and I gave a, a message, and at the end, I was just moved to sing Amazing Grace. Have I ever shared this before? I, I, I have here in this context. I can't remember. But anyway, um, so there I am. I just launched into Amazing Grace, and I was expecting them to join me. But I was, it was a solo. It was just me singing. Nothing else, nobody else responded, so I cut the verses down, you know, because I could tell nobody's singing with me here. And so the guy who was in charge afterwards said, yeah, they don't know that song. (laughs) They don't know Amazing Grace? I thought that was like just inbred, right? And they said, no, we write our, we've got all of our own songs. The songs they were singing, I've never heard. They're writing in Tamil, in Hindi, in Malayalam, whatever the case may be, new songs, and though we call some things precious and they seem like everybody ought to know them, they are not known because God's spirit's moving in a different way and it's beautiful. And I can be quiet and listen to them sing and frankly, I feel closer to God sometimes than I do when I don't even know the words. God's spirit is just there. Look at these people praising God in a different tongue. I don't understand it, but I know the object of their worship and it is beautiful to my soul. Praise him, not just with the instruments, but with the tongue. Now who? This is the last part of the invitation. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is a universal call to all creatures to praise their creator. And when the psalmist says everything, that's what he means. Rocks, trees, mountains, the sea, you know, inanimate creation, but also living beings, even animals. By their existence and by their very breath, They offer a measure of praise to God. The song of the bird is offering praise to God. Apparently the way a worm wriggles offers some sort of praise to God. I mean, they're just being who he's created them to be and that inspires praise by their existence. Even if it's unwitting, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. He's even talking about things that don't have breath. So how much more for those who do? Sam Storms says this, every creature of the sea has a song to sing, whether, oh, I got ahead of myself there too. Well, that's not really where I went to go. I'll get there in a second. What in the world? (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna, I'm back up to that. Okay, here's my quote. Every creature of the sea has a song to sing, whether the diminutive perch, isn't that an adorable little thing? Or the massive whale, be it the majestic dolphin or the ravenous shark. Stingrays and moray eels and starfish and barracudas and salmon. Together draw attention to him who's worthy of all worship. So it's a call to all creation to praise God. But they're just doing it by existing. It's not like they're sitting there having conventions about how do we praise this God who created us. And that's where we're unique and we're different. According to the Bible, he created all these same creatures and then he created us in his image. Distinct, different, creative. With the capacity to articulate, to think, to wonder, to explore. We're unique. And that's where I go back here to... The call is a universal call, but especially to man, because we're made in his image. We have inherent dignity as the crown of his creation. Psalm 8 talks all about that. Lord, Lord, how majestic is your name? You created man just a little below the angels, over the animals. We're unique. We steward things. We talked about that last week. We offer unique and profound praise. The only question is to whom? And that's really what last week was about with Proverbs, right? Who are, you, who, are you, who are you going to follow? What voice are you going to follow? And if you're following this voice, then it inspires the kind of praise that we're supposed to be offering. Jesus himself said if we don't offer this praise, the very rocks are going to cry out in our place when he came into Jerusalem and they were receiving him as a king. He says this. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, right? They're doing what Psalm 150 says for all the miracles they'd seen, for his wonderful acts of power. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, some of the people who just were rule followers, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You were made to glorify God with your lips. To praise him for his surpassing greatness and for his amazing character. And so you can be human, but you're more fully human in a sense. You're brought to fruition of who you've been created to be when you praise God. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You don't get to that chief end until you praise God. Praise him in his sanctuary. Praise him in his heavens. And that's what we're being called to do. All of life fitting together with the perspective that there's a God who's ordering all things. That he's sovereign. He's the king over all. He's transcendent on a cosmic scale. And at the same time, he's intimately involved in my life. No matter what I'm facing. Whatever tomorrow may bring that might be fearful. Fearful. The God who created all things, the one I praise, is here with me. He says, I'm with you to the very end. And there's something about being in the place where God is worshipped, entering into that space that seems to put everything else into perspective. It gives you a glimpse of eternity. It ought to anyway. That was what Psalm 73 was about. And this guy said, I'm trying to walk with God, but it seems like I'm not getting anywhere. And these people who don't care at all, about them seem to be prospering. I don't get it. You know, these people who are just mean and don't care anything, they seem to have lots of money and everything they want. And it, it, it messes with your mind a little bit, right? Like, how is that fair? How is that right? I'm trying to walk in your ways and yet I feel like I'm getting crushed. And in Psalm 73, he needs to enter into the sanctuary and there he gets a glimpse of a bigger perspective and he says ah I get it in the end that's gonna lead to nothing you've you've got all this you're in control of everything and though I may not understand it all now in worship I have a different perspective that is given me in restoring the joy because it's not all about what I have or how right, right things go but am I praising God am I in right relationship with the one who created me now that's what I need to remember And given that, now I can face anything. These other things don't matter as much anymore. See, you can't have that proper perspective until you're praising this God who's created you in all things. In all the things out there, the trees are raising their hands praising God right now. They're doing a better job than some of us do. But you've been created to do it. Not just because, but because he brings us into a point where we see that perspective. It rightly orders our thoughts. And it may not alter our circumstances, but it does place them in the correct light. In worshiping God and praising God in that way, we see who we are and we see who God is. And oftentimes we're confronted with our own sin, but we're offered forgiveness. We're reminded of our need for grace and we're invited to gaze at the beauty of God. God the Father, who created all things. God the Son, who redeems. He rescues us. And God, the Holy Spirit, who generates, gives us new life and the benefits of all that Jesus has done. But we know not everybody offers this praise. So we need to do it ourselves. In the meantime, we need to call others to do that as well. Some of you may be familiar with this phrase from John Piper. Uh, he says this, missions, that his is going to other people and telling them there's a God to be praised. It exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. That's what that's will endure. That's what goes, we're headed towards. Not missions because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's done, it's finished. And there's only worship. But here's the thing. If you're not in a relationship with God, you're gonna miss out. You' got FOMO, mojo. <laughs> Big time, right? And that's what this space exists for, to call you to worship and to say, "Man, I don't want to miss out on that for eternity, and I don't want to miss on a "now to rightly order all things. So don't, if you feel compelled at all, I don't understand any of this, this doesn't but I want to. It's pretty simple. Just tell God that. That's it. And he'll do the rest. Talk somebody, talk to me, explain what that means. Because you were created to praise God who created you. He hasn't rejected you, but you might be rejecting him. You're going to miss out. I don't want that for you. I don't think you want that for yourself either. There's an invitation for you then. Not to Sam's wedding. Although that would be kind of funny if we all showed up. But to praise the God who's created you and knows you completely. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this supper reminds us of one of the acts of power that God has done. Because when we take this bread and we eat it, we're supposed to be remembering that Jesus in his body was given for us. He gave his body for us. I and mean, he actually hung on the cross and died for us. He was a fully man. And he did that for a reason, to demonstrate his love. But God demonstrated his love for us. Right? Well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The demonstration that was on the cross, there was a real price that was paid. And Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took that bread because he knew his disciples and all who would profess faith in him afterwards would need bu- our faith to be built up because we'll forget. We easily forget. We need to remember his acts of power and his surpassing greatness, not just body that was given, but blood that was shed. In our case, we have grape juice here. And this was the price that was paid for forgiveness of sins. There was a price paid. And it was a real price. But it secured real benefits as well a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins so that you can rightly praise him. We distribute first the bread, take that all together, and then we follow it with the cup as well. And if you're a child of God, if you know him, you're in a relationship with him, this table, this is for you today. If you're not, you're like, what is all this stuff about? I'm not quite on board. Let these elements pass you by. Um, However, if you'd like to know more and you're interested, we'll get you ready. Nothing would delight me more than to see you partake in this demonstration of our unity. On the night, Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink.